word. If you want to, if you have a Bible, uh, we'll be turning to Mark chapter 1, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament. So you got to go kind of towards the back, find Matthew. Mark is the next one in line. If you, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back, like the pockets of the black chair covers. And I think in there it's page 713. I could be wrong. Well, before we turn to the text, uh, my wife and I, you know, community groups, I don't know how many of you guys are involved in community groups. They're starting up again. Um, my wife and I are in the Georgetown community group. And usually at the end of community group, we split into groups of men and women to pray for one another. And all the guys in my community group right now are going to wonder, is anything sacred? Because I'm going to tell you something about what happened in our prayer group this week. I hope that won't make them not want to share anything in the future. But what I want to share with you is that the first thing we did before we got to prayer, and we did eventually pray, but the first thing we did, our first priority was to talk about movies. Movies was the thing we wanted to do. And we got onto a very controversial subject. The controversial subject was, do we like the Avengers? Now, I don't know, Ryan's nervous. I don't know if you know what the Avengers is. It was a movie that came out last year about all these different superheroes who are all stars of their own movies and they joined forces to save the world. And even though this movie made like one and a half billion dollars worldwide, and it was the third highest grossing movie of all time, I found out that not everybody loves this movie. In fact, one of the pastors of this church, who is not me, turned off the movie after 20 minutes. And I, <laughs> it was a long night, and I'm not a comic book reader, I don't judge you if you are, but I love comic book movies because I love the origin story. I love finding out how a hero came to be the person that he is, whether through childhood trauma or exposure to gamma rays or coming from a different planet. I love the origin story. But there's a different school of thought about how to introduce a hero in a movie. And I call this the James Bond school of thought, which is that you, don't tell, you tell nothing about where they came from, their formative experiences. You just throw them right into action and you see how the hero, what kind of a person the hero is through his actions, through what he does. And in this way, and only this way, the gospel according to Mark is a James Bond kind of story. Because Mark, he doesn't give you the background. He doesn't tell you about Jesus' parents, about the circumstances of his birth, about the formative experiences of his childhood. Jesus just shows up, and Mark shows you what kind of man he is as you watch what he does. Now, Jesus' teaching is important to Mark, but most of his words are devoted to watching Jesus. He sort of chases him through his ministry like a documentary film crew, always like running to keep up, to always keep Jesus in the picture, because Jesus is what he wants us to see. So, as we continue to walk through this book and in this passage this morning, it's really important to watch what Jesus does, because that's where God is trying to show us who Jesus is. So, with that preface, I'm going to read uh, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21 through verse 34, and then I'm going to pray for God to bless us. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished 
at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came And took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you as we thank you every day and every week for giving us this book so we can know your son Jesus. We're thankful for four gospels full of stories about him, full of his teaching, and we're thankful for this gospel and how you reveal to us who Jesus is. And I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit this morning to teach us, that you would instruct us through your word, about who Jesus is and that we would respond to him in faith and obedience, that we would gladly give ourselves to this man who has all authority. Would you come now and help me and help all of us to hear? In Jesus' name, amen. So that story was kind of a lot to take in. It was a big chunk, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible. So let me go back over it and kind of provide some notes to help you understand what's going on. So this, this takes place at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he, is, he has come into Galilee, which is the, it's the region where he was born, kind of off to the north in Israel. And he's come proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel and the good news. So what he's announcing is the kingdom of God. So God for millennia had been making promises to his people, promises that he was going to gather all of his people to himself, that he was, going to, he was going to give them new hearts to love him, that he was going to make the world right as it was when he made it. And Jesus was announcing, that's coming, get ready. And the way you get ready is by turning from all the things you hope in and live for that aren't God, and you put your trust in what Jesus is preaching. You put your trust in the good news. So that's what's happening just before this. And we remember we saw last week that Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee and he saw some men fishing, four men fishing, and he said, I want you to stop fishing for fish and I want you to follow me and I'm going to teach you, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to to join with me in my work of gathering people to trust in this good news. And then it's almost like, so the camera is following him right along the sea and it's almost like he walks right into the synagogue. This is the immediate next thing that happens. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, which is 
uh, which is the meeting house where the Jews would gather on the Sabbath on Saturday, and they would hear teaching from the Bible, from what we have as the Old Testament, and they would pray, and they would remember all that God had done for them. And Jesus comes into the synagogue, and he must have had kind of a reputation by this point, because they invite him to do the teaching. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and he's and they're just amazed by the things that he's saying. It says in verse 22, They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So the scribes would have been like the local Bible experts, and they would have taught in the synagogue, and their teaching would have been like this. They would open a scroll, read something from the Old Testament, and then they'd say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi Rabbi so-and-so says this. They'd be citing these human authorities to kind of back up what they were saying. And Jesus came in, and he took the scroll, and he read it, and he just said, this means blank. No citation of authority, just straight teaching of what the Word of God meant. Nobody else taught like that, and they were astonished. And so they're starting to wonder, who is this guy who teaches? He's just, this, he's just a kid. He's just in his early 30s. Who is this that has such expertise in the Word of God that he just tells us what it means? And as they're wondering, someone in the synagogue, and this wasn't a big room, starts shouting, shouting at Jesus and saying bizarre things. Saying, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And everybody's eyes, probably, you just imagine their eyes. And they're looking from this guy shouting up to the teacher, back to the guy shouting, wondering what is going to happen here. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't kind of, you know, laugh nervously. He doesn't look around and say, whoa, hey, I was just joking. He looks at the man, and without, I mean, without timidity at all, he just says, He says, be quiet and come out of him. And the man shakes, cries out, and then is totally normal again. And Jesus must have known something about this man that nobody else knew because he didn't even speak to the man. I don't know if you noticed that. He said, come out of him. He spoke to something inside the man that he knew had the man in its clutches. And the man was made well. And so... Now, if they, if they were impressed before, now they were amazed. And they start wondering, what is this man's teaching that his words have such power that even these unclean spirits, even a demon inside this man, does what he says? And it says that his fame started to spread everywhere throughout the whole region. But Jesus, it seems, he's you know, had kind of a big morning. He just wants to go back to Simon Peter's house for some lunch. So it says that immediately he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew, two of his disciples. And when he gets there, he's told that Simon's mother-in-law has a fever. And the other writers tell us it's a high fever. And Jesus, without missing a beat, without stopping for lunch, goes to her room, takes her by the hand, and she's healed. It says the fever left her. And that, it doesn't mean the fever broke. It wasn't like kind of the turning point, and she started to get better, and by the next morning she was well. The fever left her, and her healing was so complete that she got up and she started on dinner. She didn't even need the afternoon to recover. That's how complete her healing was. And so someone who saw this started to tell people in town, and word started to spread, and they knew they knew that they couldn't come for a miracle on the Sabbath. They were supposed to stay at home, but as soon as the sun went down, which signifies the end of the day, the whole city gathered 
to the door of Simon's house. You, I, I don't know if you can imagine, you know, hearing a knock at bedtime, opening the door, and everyone you know is waiting outside, looking expectantly, wondering what this man could do. And it says that Jesus healed many of various illnesses and cast out many demons. And just as he did in the synagogue, he wouldn't permit the demons to speak. It says because they knew him. And he didn't want, before the proper time, to be outed as, as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, because he wanted, he wanted to teach everyone what it meant. And at this point, he wasn't trying so much to gather crowds as he was trying to gather disciples and followers. So that's the story. That's the story. What's the point? Why did God put this in the Bible? In a nutshell, God is saying through this passage, Jesus alone has the authority to give us what we most deeply need. Jesus alone has the authority to give us what we most deeply need. And we'll unpack that as we go through the passage, but we'll, I want to show what God gives in this passage. He gives us three insights into Jesus' authority. Three insights into Jesus' authority. First insight, Jesus alone speaks with the authority of the author. This was the first thing that everyone noticed about Jesus when he was teaching, was that he taught with authority, not as the scribes. And we don't know exactly what Jesus taught. Mark doesn't record it. But it's probable that it was similar to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a body of teaching that the Gospel writer Matthew records, where Jesus talks about some Old Testament teaching that had been misinterpreted and was being mistaught in his day, and he wanted to correct everybody and bring them back to what God actually meant. So an example would be, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And that's how Jesus taught with authority. He says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and he gives them God's intention for those words. He tells them what God says. And of course, it's not just his teaching that impresses him. It's this power he has to speak and to cast out demons. That he has authority over unclean spirits. Uh, this, is what he, this is what they say. They say, what is this? After he casts out the demon, they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. When they see him cast out the demon, it's his authority that they see. It's this authority that their attention is drawn to. So they're all wondering, who is this? Who is this that can speak this way? They're all questioning, but in the synagogue, there is somebody who knows exactly what's happening, and that somebody is the unclean spirit. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. In the, first, in the first verse of the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when Jesus is baptized, the heavens part and God himself speaks and says, You are my beloved Son. And even more remarkable than that, there's this place in the first chapter of Mark where Mark quotes an Old Testament verse that says, I, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And he says that in reference to John the Baptist. And that verse, in context, in the Old Testament, is prepare the way of the Lord, God. God himself, prepare his way. 
And John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus. And so what Mark wants us to see is this person who speaks with authority, this person who casts out demons with a word, this is God himself, the Son of God. That's who it is. And that explains why his words have such authority is because he is the author himself. He is the author of Scripture and the author of history. His is the voice that spoke the universe into existence. Jesus alone can speak authoritatively about everything. There's no subject in the world on which Jesus is not the undisputed expert. He knows more about physics than Stephen Hawking, more about governing than David Cameron, more about war than Napoleon or Lord Nelson, even more about the Tar Heels of North Carolina than Pastor Ryan Oschlager. He knows everything. And when he speaks, he speaks the words of God. And this is what we need. We need to hear from God. We need words we can trust. We need to know why we were made, why we're here. We need to know what's wrong with us and how it can be made right. We need to hear from God. It's what we need, but it's not necessarily what we want. I don't know if you have noticed this or if you find this to be true in your experience, but it seems like modern people really love authorities. We want the best information. We want to hear from an expert, which is why in America, which is where I'm from, uh, there's shows on TV that are hugely popular like Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz. And they're popular because we want an authority. We want a doctor to tell us what's wrong with us. We want a doctor to tell us what we should do. We probably wouldn't follow advice that we heard on a TV show just called Phil, right? It's Dr. Phil. He'll tell us how it is. Even though we like authorities, we prefer non-authoritative authorities. We want to be given the best information, and then we want the freedom to totally disregard it. So my wife and I have an 11-month-old son, and so we're always looking for the best baby information. We want to know the best food we can give him, and the best way to help him sleep through the night, and the best way to figure out why he's crying. But as soon as someone starts telling us, this is the, this is the exact right way, and every other way is wrong. We just, whoa, whoa. Why don't you just give us the information and let us make the decision about what's best? We like non-authoritative authorities. But that's not how Jesus' words work. Jesus speaks with the authority of the author. So when Jesus speaks, he doesn't just speak as an expert. He speaks as a monarch. He speaks as the king. And he doesn't just give out helpful information. He gives commands. We've already seen in Mark that he says, repent and believe in the gospel. He says, follow me. He commands us, and when he speaks, it's the voice of the king. There are no words in the universe as important as Jesus' words. And what we find is there are no words in the universe as divisive as Jesus' words. At one point in his ministry, many of Jesus' followers turned away from him. They stopped following him because they didn't like what he had to say. And so Jesus looked at his 12 closest followers, the 12 apostles, and said, do you want to go away as well? And Peter, in this moment of profound clarity, answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So there were some people for whom Jesus' words were like the food that they ate. They needed to hear from him. But not everyone loved his words. And in fact, it was for his words that he was eventually condemned. When Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified, it was for blasphemy. It was for speaking out loud that he believed himself to be one with God. 
that he believed himself to be his son. But if Jesus is who Mark believes him to be and who he believed himself to be, then there are no other words that can tell us why we exist and how to find the life we were made for. We have to listen to what he says. And if we do, I think you'll find that you don't want to stop listening to his words. You just consider the wonderful things that he says. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to call sinners. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. All of us need forgiveness. All of us need new life. And Jesus' words tell us where we can find it. So Jesus alone has the authority to give us what we most deeply need, words from God. But it isn't just Jesus' words Mark wants us to see. It's also what he can do. So the second insight into Jesus' authority is Jesus alone has the authority to destroy our enemies. And this is going to be the longest point of the three because I think it provokes the most questions. Because now we need to deal with this very strange situation of a man with an unclean spirit, a man with a demon, with a servant of the devil seemingly controlling him. And I think this is probably the place where um, some of you are saying, I just came for the baby dedication, and, and now I find out that I'm surrounded. I actually can't escape this group of people who believes in literal demons. Little red people with horns who sit on shoulders and whisper in ears. And I want to say to you, we, yes and no, we believe that. Yes, we believe in literal demons. Fallen angels. Jesus believed in demons. It didn't embarrass him. If it didn't embarrass him, it doesn't embarrass us. We don't believe in little red people on shoulders. What we believe is that God, at the beginning of time and before time, made angels who would serve him, who would serve humanity, who would give him glory. And many of them delighted and still delight to serve at the will of the Lord. But some of them declined to serve. Some of them wanted to do what they wanted to do. They rebelled against God. God did not tolerate that. He cast them from his presence. And now they work on earth to destroy the good things that God does. They spread lies that obscure God's truth. They tempt people to sin, to distance them from God. They can and they have hurt people physically. And the Bible says that they can gain such control over people that they can speak through their mouths and they can affect what they do. They can even take up their dwelling inside of people as in a house. And that's not fun to think about, but if it's true, then it's really important. The Bible, sometimes Christians have called this possession. And the Bible doesn't use the word possession uh, because that implies total control and that doesn't seem to be what happens in the Bible. But multiple times in the Gospel of Mark, as we go through it, we're going to encounter people who are to a very great degree influenced and afflicted by demons. And this is one of those cases. So when this man cries out, it's not the man speaking. It's the unclean spirit saying, what have you to do with us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? This unclean spirit is terrified and desperate. He knows that Jesus, with a word, could destroy him, could totally annihilate him. And he, he, he fears for his immortal life. And Jesus doesn't even answer it. He just says, be silent and come out of him. Shut up and get out. 
And just like that, he's gone. He convulses him, cries out, and is gone. And that convulsing, I think of that, like, you remember when you were a teenager, some of you are teenagers, and your parents would tell you to go to your room, and you knew you had to go. You had no option about it. Your parents had authority. You had to go to your room, but you wanted to make sure they knew how mad you were, so you slammed the door on the way up. I think this convulsion is the demon saying, I have to get out, but I'm going to get one more kick in on my way. But still, he has to obey Jesus' words. And this amazes the people. So Jesus alone has the authority to destroy our personal enemies, those who are persons, the devil and demons. Only he can set us free, but Jesus also has the authority to destroy our impersonal enemies. Our impersonal enemies. Demons are not our only enemies or even the ones we worry about most. Not in a world with cancer and AIDS and anaphylaxis. What we worry about most is death. We worry about getting sick and dying, or people we love getting sick and dying. Death is an enemy. Remember how complete Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law was. He just took her by the hand, and the fever left her. She was made perfectly well. And it wasn't a fluke. Because remember, they came at sundown, bringing him all who were sick, all who were oppressed, and Jesus healed them and cast out the demons. In the Gospels, in the four Gospels, we have 26 accounts of Jesus healing an individual. That's not just, that doesn't count the passages where Jesus healed a big group or it says that he went about healing 26 individuals, three people he raised from the dead. Jesus has authority to destroy disease and death. He has authority to destroy the devil and demons. And this is what we need. It's what we need. We need to be delivered from our enemies. And fortunately, that's why Jesus came into the world. Because demons and the devil and disease and death were not part of God's plan from the beginning. He made the world good. He made the world perfect. At the beginning, every angel was perfect. Every human was perfect. And we would have lived in a perfect world, in perfect communion with God forever, except for sin. Except that the devil and his angels rebelled and were cast from heaven And the devil tempted humanity to sin and we joined the rebellion and we were alienated from God and now we're separate from him apart from his grace. The world is the way that it is because of sin. When we sinned, God introduced death and disease as rightful punishments for our rebellion against him. If it hadn't been for sin, it wouldn't have been for any of that. And the Bible says that Jesus came into the world for that. It says that he came into the world. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. He came into the world to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And it's what we need because our enemies are too strong for us. Right? Angels are too strong for us. In the Old Testament, angels level cities. We can't do that. We can't compete with that kind of power. And death is too strong for us. We have made such incredible inroads against disease. Right? All but eliminated smallpox and polio, and the plague, and yet we haven't been able to do anything against death. It's the enemy that comes for us all. So we need someone stronger than our enemies. We need help from somewhere outside of ourselves. Someone that can take care of the things that are too strong for us. We need someone with authority to do that, and that's why Jesus came. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was the beachhead of the greatest invasion in history. It was the arrival of the rightful king of the world come to overthrow 
a usurper. Jesus came as an invasion of grace and goodness and kindness and love and power and authority for humanity. And his work isn't complete and it won't be until he returns. But what we see in the Gospels, when we see him heal people, when we see him cast out demons, it's like the first rays of dawn. It's the turning of the tide. When, when Jesus heals somebody, it's him doing on a, in a single instance and for a single person what he will do for all of creation. He will eventually roll back death everywhere. He will eventually banish the devil and demons everywhere. And this is just the beginning of what he's doing. Near the end of the last book of The Lord of the Rings, there's a character, one of the hobbits, Sam Gamgee, and he finds that one of his close friends, one of his dear friends, whom he believed to be dead, was actually alive. And it was the latest in a long string of happy surprises for Sam. And he exclaims, Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Jesus came into the world so that everything sad would come untrue. He came to roll it all back. So the obvious question to ask is, does this still happen today? Does he still heal today? Does he still set people free today? Or is this kind of limited to his time physically on earth? And the teaching of scripture is that he can and does. In the book of Acts, which is the account of the church after Jesus ascended into heaven, we see that these kinds of healings continue to be done. It says that wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So Jesus kept healing, but he did it through people. In the, in the letter of James, James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So Jesus still answers prayer for healing. About two weeks ago, my son Joshua got his first real fever. Um, it was about, the highest it got was about 102 degrees, which is 39 Celsius for anyone doing the mental math, um, which isn't an emergency, but it was the highest fever he'd had, and we were a little nervous. We just got on island, so we don't have insurance here yet, and we didn't even know where to take him if we had to, and it was after everything was closed except for the hospital, and so we prayed for him. We prayed that God would heal him, and his fever came down overnight. It never went as high again. It wasn't immediate instantaneous healing, but I think it was healing in response to prayer. Um, My wife Kim, when we were first married, she had chronic pain. She had back pain and headaches from an injury she had when she was in high school. And it was awful because she would work a full day and then she couldn't do anything at night. She was so wiped out from the pain, which meant she had to miss church all the time. She couldn't go to small group. Uh, She couldn't go to youth group, which is where we were serving. And it was really hard on her to be that separate from fellowship. And so we prayed that God would heal her. And she started going to a chiropractor. And within six months, she was pain-free from something that she'd had since she was in high school. And so we think that God answered that prayer through the means of chiropractic care. And sometimes he heals instantly. Sometimes he does. He can and has. But sometimes he answers through means. But I think he still does it. And he still delivers people from demonic influence. I don't think that was just a first century problem. Now we have to be careful and distinguish. Not, you should never think that anytime someone's sick, it's because of the devil. The Bible makes it really clear that there are things that demons can do and then there are just illnesses. There are just things we experience because we're human. 
And we see in the Bible that there are people who have been blinded by spirits and who have been crippled or who have epileptic seizures because of spirits. And we see lots of people that are just sick. And I think that God can take care of all of that. Um, But I think that sometimes people today still experience demonic influence. Um, Sometimes it manifests itself as... um, as just terrible temptation, just these crippling temptations. Sometimes it's suicidal thoughts. Um, Sometimes it is like headaches or physical afflictions. And Jesus can still set people free from that. Um, But does he always heal? Does he always heal? The message of scripture is no. He doesn't always heal. Sometimes Christians pray for healing for a long time and they don't get well. Sometimes Christians pray for a long time and they die. And there's a good example of it in the life of the Apostle Paul. So the, the Apostle Paul says that there was given him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him. So Jesus suffered something physical. It was a thorn in the flesh and something spiritual. It was a messenger of Satan to afflict him. And he says that he asked the Lord three times to take it away. And three times Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And he didn't heal him. He didn't make it better. And sometimes he doesn't, but he can. And I think we should ask him. Um, Sometimes God wants to get something done spiritually in us through physical affliction, and he doesn't heal us, and that's okay. But back to the point, Jesus alone has the authority to give us what we most deeply need. So briefly, third point, how can we be confident that he will? We know that he has the authority to make us well. He has the authority to speak the words we need. How do we know that he will? First, the third insight is that Jesus alone combines total authority with deep compassion. Total authority, deep compassion. So just, I want you to just take a step back from the text and just see the kind of man that he is. We know that Jesus' main agenda is teaching. He comes into Galilee proclaiming. He goes into the synagogue teaching. He's come with a message But every time he sees a need, his heart goes out to it. When this man has an unclean spirit, Jesus heals him. When Peter's mother-in-law has a fever, Jesus lifts her off the bed. This whole city gathers to his house at bedtime. Jesus is fully human. I'm sure he wanted to go to sleep, and yet he sees these people. His heart goes out to them, and he heals, and he casts out demons. Jesus has deep compassion, even for those who deserve what they're getting, even though we ourselves are sinners and deserve to die. We deserve the things that come into our lives, and yet Jesus has compassion for us. And the ultimate way we can know Jesus has compassion, the ultimate way we know Jesus' compassion reaches even us today is the cross. Jesus went to the cross to die for his enemies. He went to the cross to lay down his life so we could have all the good things he came to bring And if he went to the cross, we shouldn't doubt that he has compassion for us in the circumstances of our life. The cross is where we see the height of Jesus' authority over our enemies and over words, and it's where we see the height, um, it's where we see the height of his compassion. So the Bible says in the book of Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's one way the Bible refers 
to evil spirits. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through him. So on the cross, Jesus once and for all defeated our personal enemies. And it was on the cross that Jesus decisively dealt with our greatest impersonal enemy, with death. So when the thief being crucified next to Jesus said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus spoke to him, even though they were both dying, he said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. For those who trust in Jesus, even though death still comes, it's a transition into the presence of Jesus in paradise. So even though death still exists, Jesus has destroyed it by taking out all the hurt, taking out all the sting for those who trust in him. Jesus' great compassion led him to come into the world to speak the words we need to hear and to drive out our enemies, and he did that supremely so by dying on the cross. So what should we do in response to this? Briefly, what, how should we respond to Jesus' authority? The first thing each of us needs to consider is what we will do with Jesus and his words. We have seen this man with authority like no one else. He can speak God's words to us. He can drive out the enemies that harass us. He's the only one who can deliver us. He's the only one who can speak to us for God. What will you do with Jesus and his words? He still calls all people to repent and believe in the gospel and to follow him as disciples. Will you follow him? Will you receive his words as the words of your king, as the words of life and trust in Jesus? And if you're not ready for that, if, if you need to hear more, will you at least follow the example of people in the synagogue and start asking questions? Start asking the people who invited you here. Start asking your friends who trust in Jesus, what is this teaching with authority? Who is this one with power? Tell me about this cross where Jesus accomplished this great victory. Who is this Jesus? And once you've seen Jesus as he really is, as the one with all authority, secondly, will you do as the people of Capernaum did? Will you tell him about the people in your life in need of healing? When his disciples saw him cast out this demon, when they saw his power, they knew we can tell him about Peter's mother-in-law. We can tell him that she's sick. And Jesus came and he healed her. And when when the city saw what he could do for her, they brought their own friends and relatives, everyone they knew that had afflictions, and they brought them to Jesus. Are there people in your life you can tell Jesus about who are in need of healing? I've been here for less than two months, but I know that there are needs in this church. And as I've gotten to know the children of the church, I know that there is suffering, physical suffering, spiritual suffering. I've been, even this week, as I've been studying this passage, just just calling out to the Lord for the children and calling out to the Lord for you and for your families. But will you speak to him about the needs in your life? It's not always Jesus' will to heal, but knowing his great authority, knowing his deep compassion, We have no reason not to ask. And it honors him when we do. So whom can you tell Jesus about? Let's speak to him now. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your great authority. We praise you that you have all authority in heaven and on earth, that you came into the world to speak to us about God. You came into the world to destroy our enemies. We know we can trust you because you didn't even keep your own life as precious, but you laid it down for all who would trust in you. And so, Lord, help us to trust you and to follow your words, to receive them as our food, and help us, Lord, 
to bring to you, to bring to your attention those we know who need your authority to help them. God, I pray that you would even now be bringing people to mind that we can pray for and we can trust you with. Lord, please, please, please release your authority in our lives. Help us to be conformed to your image and use us as your disciples in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.